Welcome to the Jesus the Game Changer podcast from Olive Tree Media, hosted by Carl Fays. In today's podcast, Carl's guest is Mary Jo Sharp, Assistant Professor of Apologetics at Houston Baptist University. A former atheist who thought religion was for the weak-minded, Mary Jo is now a Christian author and apologist. I, um, I did not grow up in a Christian home and I didn't go to church growing up. And then I actually was raised, though I live in Houston, I was raised in the Pacific Northwest in uh, the Portland, Oregon area. It's a very different culture. And I, I have to explain that many times. It's not this Christian saturated culture that you sort of get here in the Southern United States. Um, it, it was a very different, very, church was very private in the Northwest if you did go to church. And we didn't have churches on every street corner. And I sort of like to tease people and say, you know, down here in Texas, we have um, not only churches on every street corner, but we have Tex-Mex restaurants and gas stations on every street corner. It's so different from where I grew up. You actually had to look to find where the churches were. So it's just not flooded with Christian influence. Uh, and then I wasn't raised in church. In fact, I was raised in a very um, a home that valued science, the scientific endeavor. We watched a lot of science shows. We watched a lot of nature shows. And so my background, though, it was steeped in education and culture. I'm a musician. And it wasn't steeped in a deep understanding of the Christian faith. In fact, I never went to church. So if I said to you then, what do you think of Christian or faith or belief? What would you have said? I don't know. I would have said, I don't know. Okay. Um, in fact, I've said, if somebody were to ask me directly, are you saved? I would have said saved from what? I wouldn't have understand what you, know, you were talking about. So my, my connection to Christianity came as a result of a band director, a high school band director that I viewed kind of like another father of mine. You know, he was, I, I'm a musician, I was in the band and I ended up teaching band in the public schools. So um, he actually witnessed to me. He actually, in my senior year, um, gave me a Bible and said, Mary Jo, when you go off to college, you're gonna have some hard questions and I hope you'll turn to this. And that was the extent of it. And at that moment in my life, I had some very tough questions. Like, is this all there is? Am I really just a collection of atoms in a vast and different universe? Because that's what I'd learned. And that's my upbringing. And I started to have questions about meaning and purpose for my life. And he came in at just the right time and said, hey, you're gonna have tough questions. I hope you'll turn to this. So did you start reading it? I did start reading it. I started reading, it was a NIV one year. So I had a plan for every day. And the thing that was exciting to me is as I started reading through these days, I realized that Christianity was not what I'd seen on TV. It was not as it's portrayed in the movies. It was so much more. And it was from reading the Bible, I started to get a deeper understanding and realize that I had a very um, shallow view of the Christian faith. And so um, I actually sped through, like I couldn't just read the day, you know, that day's reading, I, I sped through it. And reading through that Bible brought me around to belief in God. Um, it didn't get me all the way to Jesus though which is, I think it's kind of funny. You know, I was reading about the salvation of Jesus Christ, and, but it didn't get me there. Wow, so what did get you there? Well, I went off to college um, on my own for the, you know, and, and without, you know, my family nearby, I moved halfway across the United States to go to school. And I thought, you know what, this is my chance to go and figure out what this church thing is all about and uh, what people have to say about belief in God. And so I started going to churches on my own. And it was when I finally got to a church where I heard 
um, what Christians would say is the good news, where I heard and understood my position as being in need of a savior. And once I understood what Jesus did for me, once I understood that he was the savior, that's when I trusted in him uh, for my own salvation. It's a long way from there to sort of teaching other people about it. What got you into the area of defending faith? Ah, uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> it is a long way. Yeah, so um, I, after becoming a Christian, I, I got involved with ministry really fast. I had actually met my husband, we had gotten married, and we decided to take over a youth group. Um, that sounds funny, take over a youth group, right? Uh, we decided to fill in, and then we became full-time in ministry. And what I saw then was that um, I saw Christians who were behaving very um, contrary to what the New Testament was actually teaching about how we're supposed to treat one another and uh, the love, grace, and mercy of the Lord and how we're supposed to share it with one another. In fact, um, it was so different from my friends growing up. It, it was so much more ugly than some of my atheist agnostic friends, uh, the things that happened to us and the things that people would say that I began to see a problem. I began to see that though there were people professing Jesus was a savior, that God was real, that the Bible was true, I wasn't seeing a lot of acting that way. Uh, so it was sort of like a disconnect. And I, I began to question, are, these, are there real believers in God? Um, now, of course, I'm not looking out over time in history, right? I'm looking at what's right in front of me. And I'm saying, wow, I'm not seeing real belief here. And then I started, that, that emotional doubt that was welling up in me started causing me to say, and why do I believe? You know, what are my reasons for belief in God? And I started to realize I didn't have much to go on. And so that, that sort of inward, like looking at myself, why do I say I believe in God? That led me out to this field of defense of the faith. I actually didn't mean to get into it. I just went to answer, how do I know Jesus rose from the dead? How do I know God exists? And I started reading works on those questions. I started watching debates you know, between Christians and atheist philosophers. And uh, that brought me back around to this position of, hey, not only do I believe in God, but I bet other people have doubt. I bet other people would like to know this information. So I began to teach it in my local church. We wanted to explore that area of what gives you confidence and in faith and belief in the person of Jesus. So what gives you confidence in the New Testament and the stories of Jesus? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so what gives me confidence that Jesus was basically a real person um, and that he resurrected from the dead was as I was exploring the defense of the faith, I found um, that I could trust, for one, the authors of the New Testament. I found that these authors had no motive to dismiss their testimony. Um, they weren't gaining power, there was no lust involved, there was no money that they got out of this. And so the, the New Testament authors, I, I found myself saying, I have no reason to distrust what they're writing. And in fact, one of the, one of the passages that really uh, impacted me, even when I was not a believer, was the passage from Luke 1, where he clearly states his purpose for writing, which is that he checked all these things out. He investigated all these things so that he could report back to Theophilus um, that, you know, the certainty of the things that he had been taught. So that really impacted me here. This guy is saying, this is actually why I'm writing it. So um, I have no motive to distrust him. And that was one of the things that impacted me. I could actually trust these documents. 
Another thing that impacted me was the evidence of Jesus, um, of Jesus's death and life, the evidence surrounding that. And I, have, I found Gary Habermas's work on the minimal facts argument. And he, he just surveyed a bunch of scholars writing on the resurrection from 1975 to the present and in French, German and English. And he found that there was an agreement that these scholars had actually found things that they said were factual about Jesus's life, whether they were atheists, you know, they had liberal theology, they had conservative theology. It was just across the board. These were the facts and um, the minimal facts. He had like 12, right? So <laughs> that's a lot. Um, but the minimal facts were uh, that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. And so one of the things that impressed me about this is you can't die by Roman crucifixion if you're not a real person. Right? And this is this fact alone is one of the most historical facts that we have about any ancient person. And that's that's really impressive. Like we can actually know he was a person who died because it, it, just in that area, the truth of that is not just in what's written in the Bible, is it? There are other people in other uh, that were writing at that time who point to the same piece of information. Yeah, who point to um, is specifically Jesus's death. You have um, outside sources. In fact, you have um, Suetonius, I don't know if he's specifically right on Jesus's death, but Tacitus, you have a, a bunch of people from this era, um, Lucian of Samsada, uh, Marabar Serapion. These are people who are writing within that time frame um, about Jesus as a person. And, so, and some of them mention his death as well. Some of them mentioned that his disciples were teaching he was the Messiah. And they mention it as, and that was erroneous, right? That's what they're saying. So these, these people aren't agreeing with what they're writing. They're just pointing to this person right, in history. Like Josephus, the Jewish scholar, and he's pointing towards, you know, Tacitus, I mentioned, he's one of them, if not the greatest Roman historian, and he mentions Jesus. So, you know, I found that Jesus was a real person. And one of the ways I found that was that he died by Roman crucifixion. And this is a uh, this is something that we can know from ancient history. What, what really impressed me was that if you say, no, I don't believe that it was a legend or a myth by the criteria you're using to do that, you actually have to get rid of much else in ancient history. You have to get a lot a rid of a lot of other knowledge. And I, I don't know that people understand that when they get rid of just that Jesus was a real person, that he died by Roman crucifixion, that uh, by the criteria, you're just getting rid of most of what the other sources and you know that we have for other individuals like Tiberius Caesar and Emperor Augustus. So that was very impressive to me. And then um, that Jesus's disciples believed that they had had an experience with the risen Jesus and that that changed their life. Um, they go from these frightened, hiding individuals who are denying Jesus, running away at his death um, to coming back to proclaiming Jesus as the risen Lord in that area in which he um, had been put to death. And upon pain of death, right, they're told to disperse, do not call this guy the Messiah, no more preaching of this, um, or we'll put you to death. And they, that's the environment that they're saying Jesus had risen from the dead. And they're willing to go to their deaths for that, for something they know would be a lie if they were just making it up. So that, that's another one of the minimal facts that really impressed me um, about that there was a man named Jesus who lived, died, and then apparently rose from the dead. Mary Jo, we're going to come back to those, those areas about what Jesus left and the disciples. But 
In, in the records that you're referring to, there's sometimes some disagreement between them. How, how did you handle that as you were discovering or looking at the, the veracity of the Bible? Uh, disagreement in the documents from the mm. New Testament. Yeah, that's actually a great point. And it's something that Christians don't need. They need to understand that there are reports that seem like they you know, don't match up. And one of the, the ways that I came to understand, you know, what actually is going on is first that, you know, we don't report things in the 20th and 21st century like they did in the first century or in ancient times. You know, we expect it to be completely accurate, match up, um, you know, no personal influence on it and our way of seeing the story. We want it objective. Not that we always get that in our day and age, but that's what we're saying we want. And that's just not a realistic perspective for the context of um, the ancient culture and the environment in which they're giving. Um, they're, they're giving their testimonies about this in a way that is traditional for them. That was one thing. The other thing was that um, in reading a, a great book called Cold Case Christianity by Jim Warner Wallace, and um, I love the way he's a homicide detective who does cold case um, um, old cold cases, I'm, I guess is what he does. So um, he, he started looking at the Gospels and their reportage of the events in the way that he would look at one of his cases. And what he found, and I thought this was amazing, I, I don't know why I never thought of this myself, was that um, if he gets a group of four people together to um, get their testimony on a case, you know, what did you see, what happened? If they give the exact same report as a detective, he's going to say, um, there's something fishy here. Like this, this looks conspiracy theorist, right? They all got together. They all told each other what they had seen. And now it's coming out exactly the same way. And he said, the fact that the gospels are told in different ways from different perspectives to where I don't have an exact report, but I do get the same story overall. He says that actually gives me veracity that these are individuals telling the story according to how they experienced them. And this is what you would expect from eyewitness testimony is that you get little variances according to their own purposes for how they saw things, what they want to highlight. And he says that actually verifies it rather than gives him cause to say, no, no, this is all you know made up or whatever. It's if they reported it exactly the same way that he said he would have cause to think, hmm, this looks fishy. And that, I think that's a great way of explaining without going into each individual instance. That's a great way of looking at it. Uh, so, somebody's also said, or numbers of people have said that, that, that some of the smaller side pieces change, but the serious facts don't change. They don't. Yeah. The serious facts um, about Jesus's uh, stories, his, uh, what he taught, the basic philosophy that comes out of it, his, um, you know, his death, his resurrection. These are all the same. It does not change. And that's, that's very important um, because, uh, you know, when you look in history at made up stories, right? You look through these stories were written by authors that are just, they're fantasy, they're fictitious. You know, you don't get figures like Jesus Christ coming from four separate authors. If you're just looking at the gospels, you know, there's more as you broaden out to the letters of the New Testament, but you don't get um, four different individuals creating the same enduring character at the same time frame that people, um, you know, follow for ages. You, you don't see that throughout history. In fact, you see um, works of genius coming very infrequently and, uh, you know, one here and one there. So like Shakespeare or Charles Dickens or, you know, you and we don't even look at their characters as real people. Right. We don't think 
hey, this is a, um, a real person. But when you look at what happens with the Gospels, you've got four writers uh, and more, and they're all coming up with the same story, the same character of Jesus Christ. Um, and, it, and it impacts people in a way that you have to consider these would be geniuses, right? <laughs> these would be geniuses as authors. And I'm actually, that's not one of my arguments. It's another argument I encountered from John Lennox. Um, talking about just looking at literature, you don't get this kind of figure developed over time in history, um, not at the same time concentrated in the same era by all these authors. So it's really hard to view it as uh, fictitious because it would take almost a miracle for something like that to happen. hope you're enjoying this podcast. Olive Tree Media seeks to introduce people to Jesus, communicate a Christian worldview, and transform beliefs, attitudes, and lives through media. Now let's get back to the interview. Looking at what Jesus left, and you, you talked before about the disciples being afraid, um, unsure, not sure of the future. Odd question, but what did Jesus leave? Because he didn't leave a great deal, did he? Uh, yeah, he didn't leave it. He didn't have an inheritance to leave behind as far as material things. But what he left behind was a group of individuals who were, um, they were convinced that he was the son of God. And they were convinced that he had brought forth a new era of redemption for mankind. They were convinced that the kingdom of heaven had come to earth. Uh, and they were willing to um, go to their deaths to give other people what they believed was the truth about the re about reality of this universe that Jesus had come in for salvation of mankind, and I mean that's I, we could talk about what did he leave behind? That is the great inheritance that he left um, in this small group of individuals who then went out and shared it with the world. There were other religious leaders at the time, other Messiah figures, and even through history. How does Jesus kind of? compared to, or how is he different from other religious leaders? Jesus is very different from other religious leaders. And I think the big point that we, um, we need to look at is that he resurrected from the dead. It's resurrection that sets him apart. Um, so Jesus not only um, was um, a great teacher, a prophet, whatever you want to call him, but he also predicted his own death and resurrection. And then those things came to pass. And that's what the letters of the New Testament are um, telling us. That's what they're testifying to and giving us eyewitness testimony that you know, he was dead, but now he's alive. I've seen him myself. And so one of the main differences is that great um, and important doctrine of resurrection, which is the foundation of the Christian faith. There was, as we said before, there wasn't a lot except for this idea of a small group of people who were following Jesus in, in a backwater, really. <laughs> uh, within 300 years, you know, they've become the religion of the empire. What do you put that down to? I put that down to the fact that it was an entirely different worldview. And it was a worldview of unconditional love and radical tolerance um, that we see Jesus preaching in Luke six, you know, do good to those who don't do good to you, love your enemies. And this sort of teaching was just, it was revolutionary. Um, Jesus even mentions, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And isn't that the way of the world? But he comes back and says, but I tell you, love your enemies, do good to those 
um, who hate you, who persecute you, who don't do good to you. And the reason that this is so important and the reason why I think it spread was because that is tolerance. That is acceptance. That's unconditional love. And when people get a hold of that, they, ah, that's how it's supposed to be, right? This, this thing that we're looking for, the desire of our heart to be accepted and loved just as we are for who we are, this is what Jesus is teaching, and it radically transforms people. One of the things that might surprise people kind of in our modern era, as if we can put it in those terms, is actually how Jesus taught women and how Jesus treated women. From your perspective as a woman looking at that, how did Jesus treat women that was perhaps different? Yeah, I think that's really important because you, you're dealing with a time frame in which women were objects. They were objects of possession. Um, they were objects of sexual desire. And, you know, you don't teach them, you know, therefore domestication. And here comes Jesus on the scene. Um, not only has bringing you know, women disciples along with him, but you know, directly teaching women, which is contrary to his culture. Uh, the scene with Mary and Martha, I love that because you know, Martha's doing what the culture expects of her. She's you know, cooking, she's cleaning, she's doing all that. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but then she pipes up and says, hey, look at Mary, what, you know, tell her to come help me. And Jesus is tells her, you know what, Mary has chosen what is better. It's not going to be taken from her. I think that's just revolutionary here. I'm going to continue to let her sit at my feet and learn theology, philosophy. I'm going to, because she has a mind. God has given her a rational mind that needs developed. And look what she's doing. She's sitting here and learning from the greatest teacher who ever lived. It's not going to be taken away from her. Wow, what a statement that she's not just an object, you know, to be used but she is a subject, she's a human being to be loved, to be poured into. And I think that's the major change that you see with how Jesus interacts with women. One of the stories about Jesus' resurrection was that the first person to see him was actually a woman. Why was that important? Oh, I think that's very important um, in that, you know, I've done some work in Islam and I've, I've contrasted this, you know, in Islam, the testimony of a woman is worth half that of a man. And that's said very plainly by Muhammad. But when you look at Christianity, the foundational doctrine of resurrection, you know, that's the basis of the Christian faith. The first testifiers to that doctrine are women. And I, God trusts women and he trusts their testimony. And that's a big contrast, not only to their culture, but also to against, you know, Islam and that culture. In, in our culture, uh, the church and the teaching of the church is almost seen as yeah, negative towards women, um, second class citizens. As somebody leading and teaching in the church, how do you see that? Um, I see that if you go back towards uh, the way that Jesus viewed women, again, God made women with a rational mind. Um, we're made in the image of God. And I see Jesus as respecting women uh, for their minds and being willing to teach them and being willing to lift them up. And so, yes, there has been some of that in our past. And uh, I think we need to get back to the way that Jesus viewed women, um, that she is of immense worth and value as a human being. Um, great line from uh, Jesus when he's asked uh, by the Sadducees who are trying to trap him in Matthew 22. They say, uh, 
you know, there's a woman who's been married to several men and, you know, when she dies, because, you know, that is the brothers kept marrying her over and over because that was the custom. And then he said, the Sadducee says to Jesus, when she dies, you know, who, to whom will she be married in heaven? And Jesus said, uh, well, first he said, you err, because you do not know the scripture nor the power of God, because he knew you were trying to trap him. But then he says, men and women are not given in marriage in heaven. And I think that's interesting that the thing that survives, the thing that carries on for both men and women is not this marriage relationship. It's uh, our relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, so him viewing us as an individual. So I always try to stress the Christian woman as a Christian, right? Because this is what is going to survive into the afterlife. So that's an interesting piece because Jesus is, we tend to see that as a kind of a teaching about the afterlife. But you're saying it's actually teaching about the, the importance and place of woman next to a man. I don't know if it's specifically trying to do that, but I think it's interesting that the, the we, we do have this marriage relationship here on earth, which I think reflects a picture of the uh, Christ and his bride, and it reflects the gospel here and now, but it doesn't carry on into the afterlife. So I think it's an interesting note that we're not given in marriage in heaven. I think that's about as far as you can go, but yeah. Uh, this series is called Jesus the Game Changer. Let me ask you, how do you see Jesus as the game changer? Wow, Jesus is, he is definitely a game changer. I think he brings in an entirely different worldview. And I think what that worldview entails as far as him uh, changing the game is he's setting people free. Uh, that's what he's doing. People were made to live in relationship with God. And when he created us, when God created us, Genesis 1 tells us that it was very good. But as human beings, we live in a world in which we look out there and we say, this does not look very good. And I know that I struggle within myself. I know others struggle with evil, pain, suffering. Um, and Jesus comes into the world and says, you don't have to live like that. You can be set free from the evil of mankind. Um, you can be set free from the problems of this world. And maybe we suffer now, but there's an answer to that later. It's not just, oh, you're suffering. Well, that's the way of the world. This is just the way the world is. Then you die. Nothing comes of it. Jesus says, no, actually, you weren't intended for that. That wasn't the way that I made you. Um, you were intended for relationship with me. So I think what you see in Jesus is he is the most fully human human being that ever lived. He's showing us how to be human. Now, some people might say, well, he was God, you know, <laughs> I can't be like Jesus because he's God. But I would say, but look at how he lived. Look at the example he gave us. Um, he showed us that we can have communion with God. He, sh he said things like there's other meat that you do not know. He didn't need to just eat the food of the world. He needed the food of his father. He needed that spiritual life. So I think that's when you talk about Jesus being a game changer, he's showing us what it means to be human. Um, and he's the most fully human that ever lived. So setting us free so we can live in the glorious relationship with God, uh, with the awe and wonder of children, that we never need to lose that, right? We never need to lose that awe and wonder at the glorious nature of the living Lord. And so I think that's where Jesus comes in as a game changer, frees us back up from our own enslavement, where we've enslaved ourselves 
to the false philosophies of mankind and says, hey, you don't need to live this way. You are truly free. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to support the radio, video and podcast ministry of Olive Tree Media, you can donate online at olivetreemedia.com.au and click on the donate button in the top right corner. We accept both tax-deductible and non-tax-deductible donations. Thanks for listening. Support.